This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Coming up, we'll spend the hour with one of America's leading novelists and short story writers, Nicole Krauss. Her latest book is an acclaimed collection of short stories called To Be a Man. In it, she explores relationships teetering on the edge and the pull for men and women to be free. We often see the end of marriages as failures, but I guess that's because we have a kind of fairy tale, somewhat absurdist notion about relationships that should last, like my parents, for 50 years or more. Right. You know, and, and they so rarely do, and they so rarely should, honestly, because we are human beings like every other species. It's committed to evolution, you know, and that evolution happens over thousands of years, but it happens over a lifetime too. We need to evolve to stay alive. We'll also discuss what it means to raise boys in the era of Me Too, her endless interest in her Jewish legacy, and more. That's Nicole Krauss ahead on Life Examined. Every week on this program, we bring you stories about science, philosophy, faith, and what it means to be human now. And if there was one novelist who hits on all of these themes in her work, it's Nicole Krauss. Krauss arrived into the literary world with her first novel, called Man Walks Into a Room, which was published in 2002. That was followed by the acclaimed novel The History of Love. Her writing takes the reader deep into the heart of the human condition. Her characters grapple with the tensions of love, fidelity, history, heartbreak. Born into a Jewish family in New York, Krauss is often exploring what this deep religious and cultural tradition means to her. Her most recent book is a collection of stories called To Be a Man. As the title suggests, questions of masculinity are present throughout the book. But that's not all. The collection takes the reader on a tour, from boarding schools in Switzerland to the museums of New York to the streets of Tel Aviv. The New York Times said of the collection, quote, In each of these moving stories, we feel the weight not only of family, but of history and faith and leaving a legacy pressing down on every one of her characters. Well, Nicole Krauss, it's such a pleasure to have you on for this hour of Life Examined. Thanks for joining us. It's really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love this collection. And uh, as a man myself, it brought up so many questions of of manhood for me and of, of masculinity and and what that means in in this year of 2020, uh, with a crazy election going on and a president that's brought a lot of those questions to the forefront as well. I know that in your life, you've been raising two young boys. I think they're around 11 and 14, if I have that right. And I I wonder how present they have been in your writing here, because clearly they show up and certainly they come up in the last story. But maybe you can kind of take take that theme I'm talking about and kind of go with it. What comes to mind? Sure. I'm... I remember long ago, not so long ago, but some years ago when I was um, thinking about this collection and I had to give my publisher a title. So at that point, um, I only had a few stories from this book. And um, that's something that I, I feel like has sometimes been misunderstood about this collection already. <laughs> but it's I, most of the stories were written in the last years. Um, there's one that's very old that I wrote right after 9-11, but most of these stories were written in the last years. And so I, many of them really, I did think about as like a, a filling out of a number of ideas um, or an exploration of a number of ideas. And I remember riding up in the elevator to see my publisher and thinking of a title because you're often asked for a title when you propose a book. And um, 
this one just floated into my head. And at the time, it meant many things to me. I I had been thinking a lot about um, how for most of my life as a writer, I've been inhabiting men equally as much as I have been inhabiting women that I'm drawn to try to understand what that is like on the page. Um, I started to think about my own experiences with men in in my life, which of course began as a child um, and has, you know, extended in in every possible (laughs) fashion and way since then. But then I came to that last bit, which you brought up, which is what it has been to be raising two boys who are, you know, at least one of them on the cusp of manhood and the other will soon follow. Um, I've thought a lot about um, what that means for them at a moment in time when manhood has never been more beleaguered in a way or more challenged or more confusing um, an occupation. Um, and, and, you know, this was, when I thought of this title, that, that was, I guess, you know, right around the time, um, or maybe right, right previous to the time of Me Too, but of course, Me Too then happened. And I often throughout that time, when all of that was so much on, on the mind of, you know, culture, although I always feel like it's been on any woman's mind since she was a child. <laughs> Those issues have been with us always. But um, as that conver- cultural conversation widened, I also felt, you know, I guess to some degree, the narrowness, the necessary narrowness of it, just any movement has to kind of simplify in order to be effective. And the Me Too movement and its address of sexual harassment and um, sexual abuse couldn't address so many things like really for example misogyny you know which is um you know exists from the top down in our society but it also couldn't address so much of the complexity and the tenderness the the challenge of manhood in this time what's asked of men and all the conflicting things that are asked of men and I think it's there where I kind of like settled in as thinking about this. And I feel, I, I guess I'm interested in, in looking at these things with some, with some tenderness, not trying to necessarily resolve these paradoxes, but at least opening them up a little bit for myself and I hope for the reader. Yeah. When you think about the complexity of that question of manhood, I mean, uh, outside of, of the Me Too movement as well, I, I, I wonder what what questions come up for you when, when we think about that? Well, I mean, there's so, so many assumptions um, that are, that I think, you know, let's put aside what women have to grow up against. That's a whole other issue. And I do hope right. that some of that, the book addresses right. some of those things as well. But you know, I think this question of, you know, the strength and vulnerability, mm. like w- what it is to be asked to to hold power or to have physical strength or emotional strength, 
And at the same time, as of the last couple of generations, um, what it is to be asked to have enorm- enormous emotional sensitivity, mm-hmm. finesse, and to be able to make oneself vulnerable. And those two opposing things or at least they're often played as opposing things. I don't, you know, ultimately they're not. But um, to have enormous strength um, and to be called on to protect, um, as some of these characters are in the book, for example, the Israeli soldier, um, but at the same time to be asked to show one's weaknesses it's really um, a challenge, I think, for all of us, men and women. And I think we all are striving, ideally, toward that. Um, but I also think, you know, with men, it becomes complicated in, in that in the conversations women have often with each other, what they want from men in sexually or even at home um, in relationships and romantic relationships it's very different than what they might want of them um, in their professional lives or in marital relationships that involve raising children, you know? And so there's there are these compete, competing requests or demands about um, power, I think, to some degree, or strength, or um, I guess all, all of these things. And, and so I think, you know, the, I was drawn to some of those questions, but I don't want to mislead a reader to imagine that this is a book that's a non like a nonfiction book has a thesis about manhood or that only right. concerns itself with that. Right. Because, you know, of the 10 stories in this book, seven of them are told by women and are very much about women's experiences often with men, their fathers or their lovers, but also between between each other as friends and first and foremost within themselves in the quest to um, define themselves um, as individuals. So, yeah, it's one stroke, I guess, in the canvas. Yeah. I think that's that sums up a lot of of what's going on in this book beautifully, and I don't think it limits what's going on in the book either. So I, I really appreciate that. But I, I I feel in this book your kind of relentless interest in in relationships, in love, and and in pa- the paradox of love that comes up. I think of this tension, um, uh, perhaps one of, of of freedom versus the stability of relationships, which seems to come up over and over in this collection. Um, is that something that is still very present with you exploring that tension as well? Absolutely. I think that is m- perhaps the main question um, surrounded by many other questions in this book, but maybe the most insistent question in this book is about to what are we each drawn and yeah. are we drawn to stability and the safety of a relationship that can hold and keep and protect us ongoing and in a kind of enduring way. And mind you, all of us need those. I think very few people can live without those, some of those, they don't need to be romantic, but something, relationships that root us um, and connect us. And, or do we fall, you know, closer on that human spectrum to the other side, which would be the freedom to become, which demands 
an opening of experience, ongoing change, ongoing opportunity for change, for experiencing novel things that will mm. make us change our minds, change ultimately, ideally, our being. And th that question is something, that question of where we each fall on that spectrum has always been with me. I guess it would come as no surprise to any reader long-time reader of my work to know that I probably fall closer on the side of the spectrum that that longs for or yearns for experience and change, that something in me feels that that's what I'm alive for. And my life has just had to organize itself around that, for better or for worse. Um, but I also respect the other position and I respect all the positions in between and I don't know that there's anybody alive who isn't in the midst of a difficult negotiation between those two yearnings and those two needs and sacrifices are made on either side um, you know I have parents who have been married now they just celebrated their 50 year anniversary <laughs> that's a different you know there's wow. a different set right. of sacrifices and a different set of needs and but no different than the ones that somebody who needs to live knowing that every day she wakes up and anything can happen to her they're, they're it's the same kind of species the same kind of human beings it's just how we choose to live and I, I, I remember so well when my youngest son was much younger he really just desperately for years he wanted to grow up to become an explorer as if those still could exist in the world and if the world as if the world were big enough for there still to be able to host explorers <laughs> um but he wanted to travel all over the world and always be discovering things and and just have this little backpack and and i remember walking to school with him one day and he said to me mom why doesn't everybody want to be an explorer and i said because a lot of people really need the comfort of being in one place and things not changing and and the, the stability of that and everybody needs to figure that out where they're going to fall at what time in their life on that on that gradient you know and that's spectrum and so um i mean i guess i mean you know i'm interested in finding characters who are in the midst of that struggle who are i guess one way to put it like on the threshold of should i stay or should i go and if I can ask, it's it's a little personal. I know that you did go through a divorce about six years ago. And I, I wonder how that kind of wove its way into some of these ideas and to some of these characters, because there's so many uh, there in this collection. There are a couple of stories uh, that very, very hit on this question of, of lifelong companionship or not. I wonder what thoughts you have on that. Well, I guess, you know, that that this struggle between these two um needs has been with me all my life and yeah. um i mean that story future emergencies which is that one that was written a long time ago just after 9/11 is about this very idea it's a, it's a relation it's well it takes place in an in a moment in new york city where everyone is asked by the mayor and the city to get gas masks and they don't know why, but really it's a story of a relationship between a younger woman and, and her older boyfriend and this is question mm -hmm. of should she leave him? And so I guess that question has been with me all my life and um, I don't think it's only as a result of you know deciding I, that I'm not a person who can stay in one relationship all my life and, and that in that sense marriage is 
is not um, th- the right institution for me. <laughs> um, and sure. <laughs> um, but I, you know, again, this it's funny how there are threads of conversation that weave through our lives, and there'll be days when one thing will come up very often, and and this thing came up in a number of conversations I had recently, which is. It's not exactly what you asked, but I feel like it's worth saying, which is I just feel so enormously grateful for everything that's happened to me. Sure. I wouldn't change any of it. I just, yeah. I really wouldn't change any of it. And I, and I feel like, you know, again, these experiences that we have and when we decide to move on from them, I don't, I, I don't see them maybe, and this is, this is worth noting because in our culture, mm-hmm. I think, we do. We, I don't see them as failures, and I think we hmm. we often see the end of marriages as failures. But I guess that's because we have a kind of fairy tale, somewhat absurdist notion about relationships that should last, like my parents, for fifty years or more. Right. You know, and and they so rarely do, and they so rarely should, honestly, because we are human beings, like every other species it's committed to evolution, you know, and that evolution happens over thousands of years, but it happens over a lifetime too. We need to evolve to stay alive. Um, mm-hmm. I just think we go through phases in which we need and are experimenting with things in different ways and growing in different ways. And then we sometimes very often move on from them, which is not to say we leave those things behind. They stay with us. They're part of us now, right? Those people, often those relationships are part of us now. They just change they're, um, they change shape. You know, and, and one thing I, I love so much about your writing and your stories are, is this central theme of paradox that runs through it so much, whether it's the stuff we're talking about here or, or many others. And I, I wonder with you, how, how do you learn to live with questions? How do you learn to live with paradox, even within yourself as a person who's someone who spent a career exploring them? I guess that career has taught me some degree of patience or um, like ability to sustain that kind of uncertainty, like in the same way that a person who sits in a meditative practice, apparently, (laughs) after many years, it becomes more and more comfortable. I I do know that um, this strange spot that I've chosen to nestle myself in in life, which is like the fault line, you know, and the the not knowing and worse or equally draw drawing of my interest, not being able ever to know. Um, I think I've developed um, like a what's the word I'm looking for? Like a kind of athleticism. What do you call an endurance? A kind of an yeah. athletic endurance for it um, that probably has then like fed back into my life itself. And although I can be as just as impatient as the next person, so um, about many things. Um, But I think I learned that maybe in part, I, you know, as a young person, I really read like so much poetry and I was so, so dedicated to the idea of wanting to become a poet. So like really the first 10 years of my writing life and I think my writing life started in earnest when I was like 24 or or, I'm sorry 14 or 15 and then I only decided to write a novel at the age of 25 so for the years before that I was really so steeped in poetry and poetry is like a very very deep education in exactly that you know like 
there's there's no really great poems about knowing for sure. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no really great poetic vein about certainty. Um, and I think, you know, that's what's so spiritual about it. I you know spiritual in that we are on one side of a belief that we can't ever confirm. And I'm not a religious person, um, and I theology doesn't really draw me and never has. But I think I am a spiritual person. I don't think it's possible to be a spiritual person without being able to sit comfortably with that kind of doubt. Um, and also to be drawn to look at, or f- if at all possible, like put oneself in the way of the unknowable. You know, what what is more spiritual than that? Yeah, it's interesting that that uh, you say you're not drawn to theology. I, I totally hear that. And but I do know that there, there's some probably aspect of of maybe Judaism or some part of your history uh, in in the Jewish identity or in the culture that that speaks to you in some way or questions that come out of that tradition. Is that true? You know, we are all born into our material. And I think at some point very early on in my writing life, certainly my fictional writing life, I realized what a gift it was to have been born into Jewish culture, Jewish history, Jewish thinking, Jewish literature, Jewish humor, (laughs) Um, and a Jewish family that, you know, in my case, really falls at the crossroads of so many things in in nationalities, languages, um, because my grandparents were all from Europe and and during the war they all left. And so then my mom grew up in London and my dad grew up in New York and Tel Aviv and my parents met in Israel. So all of that, which was problematic as a young person because I had no real fixed sense of belonging anywhere as a writer is just an enormous gift because um, you belong to something which can't be put on a map, but it certainly can be mapped out in words. Um, And I think that that's been like a gift to just engage with those, you know, 3,000 years of history ain't nothing. (laughs) Like, and it keeps reverberating in modern history because of, for a million reasons, the state of Israel, not least of all. But um, so I think it's been interesting to, to to like kind of place my characters in those same crossroads of um, history and tradition. Um, and I guess there are lots of questions that that raises. But I always have the hope, and I I think this has been borne out. But I always have the hope that those things then become universal that you know people who read my books and might not know a particular reference to some Jewish idea or text that they're that it it applies equally to them and that mm. you know they they will feel at home in the work I don't know that that's always true but I I hope it well I think what one thing I I feel so present always in your work is is the ability to have this this one foot planted in the endless optimism of the American spirit, of the notion that anything can happen or that we can be anything. And at the same time, um, 
this history that goes back thousands and thousands of years that is rooted in something a little bit more present that the, the literally the roots uh, go far, far under what we know here in America. That still seems to be something that that uh, comes out, in, even in these stories that were written just a couple of years ago. Yeah, and and um, may always, the, you know, all of the after five books, the question is raised of you know, we can reinvent ourselves as writers, mm. formally, stylistically, but can we reinvent our concerns, or does every artist really have just a number of concerns that that play out? in their work over a lifetime. Right. You know, I don't I don't really know the answer to that, but if I look at other writers and artists, I would say that's probably true, you know, and I mean and, and you know, not maybe there's something comforting about that too, you know, because mm. as everything else changes, as the novels, I've always been told that my novels seem very very different from one to the next and but at least the <laughs> preoccupations have have a thread. Um but I think like that, you know, that idea is absolutely right to pull out. I mean, it's such an important one to me, just to be caught and as a writer between these two completely different visions. One, the American one, which is really about self-invention, like, and we're so steeped in it that we don't realize how much of the rest of the world sees that as unusual. You know, this notion that one could just make oneself up you know you right. you know countries like india with a class system or, or england or many other places it's absolutely an absurd notion right it shouldn't be but it is on the other hand it's also really if we look at it in america it's a somewhat absurd notion here because nobody can entirely invent themselves we all have to answer to history to our history and to what we're born into the families we're born into the nations were born into in their particular histories. And so we're always like toggling between, I guess, as Americans, we're toggling between those two things. I think as Jews, we toggle between those two things in, in a deep sense in that, you know, take someplace like Israel, it's a country that's, you know, only 70 years old, but happening on a land that's where there's been a history of life for many, many, many thousands of years that keeps coming to the right. surface, literally in the dirt, you know, in archaeology, um, but in, in in countless other ways as well. Um, and so that struggle, like, for example, a story in, in the collection Zushi on the Roof is very much about that. It's about what does it mean to be a person who has bent oneself to duty and to, to, to serving tradition in a sense and to serving one's history. The, the, the main, the protagonist is a, is a professor of Jewish history who is nearing the end of his life and he's just nearly died of stomach cancer and come back to life as it were and his grandson has been born in that time and this, he wants for him, he imagines or fantasizes for him a life without that. What would be to be born into a moment in which one could be free to become whatever one wanted to be, you know, without the crushing forces of one's familial and, um, you know, historical background. Um, so I think that's been, I mean, that was, we spoke last about Great House, and I think that that book was very much um thinking about those ideas as well. 
as you were saying this, I, I it brought me back to this notion of of motherhood for you and these two boys you're raising, and and how much this these questions get brought up with them that of their American identity of of being what you want, but also this incredible sense of history you're always writing about. It just makes me think: What do you want to leave them with as you as you bring them into the world? <laughs> God, that's such a massive question. Um, two things came to mind. Um, which I, I don't know if they could possibly begin to answer that question, but one is just um, just this morning. My my older son, who you're right, he's fourteen. He's reading one of my books for the first time. He's reading the history of love, wow. and he was you know we were drove we drove to school well not school to his pod this morning, and um, sure. yeah, and he was reading it in the back seat and. The younger one wants to read it next, and so he's the older one said, "Oh wait, is that? Does this mean that he's reading the history of love? Is that, does this did this uh, character mean that?" And then the younger one said, "Don't tell me, don't tell me." And then the older one said, "God, it's just so weird to read this book and to know that you invented these characters." <laughs> and it was just, you know, it's just such a funny thing. And I said to him, "You know, you're one of the few people in the world." Probably who has that feeling? You and my dad. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but and then, but the other thing, uh, the other story that popped into my mind, and it's the writer in me that sees the association with this, is that I guess there's this question of like, how much do I want my children to know about my own history, about the world's history, which is to say, like histories of the of things that are difficult and and painful. And how much do we mm. want them to live free, right? Free just without that knowledge to become. And of course, the question itself is silly because we don't have much of a choice, right? They, they, will, they find out everything and know what they know and the world just teaches them even when we don't want it to, this pandemic being a case in sure. point. Um, but I do remember this moment when um, my kids were very young and, and, and I knew that that we were getting divorced and they didn't yet know. And I had to go choose a Hebrew school for the older one because he was going to have to get bar mitzvah. And I think he, they were quite, he was maybe eight or something. I had to go to bar mitzvah. So I went to this Hebrew school to sit in on a class and it was like Holocaust Remembrance Day and they were talking about Anne Frank. And all these little kids were just like, all these kids his age were just going on and on with all their knowledge. Like, well, Anne Frank lived at this house and this was her address and Anne Frank's mm-hmm. diary. And, and I and as I was sitting in that class, I thought to myself, oh, my God, I haven't told my kids about the Holocaust. <laughs> and then I heard, like, God, I haven't told them that their parents are getting a divorce, and I haven't told them about the Holocaust. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. you know what I mean? And there's that moment where just like, God, like, I'm going to have to break all of this to them. And, you know, it's right. a sort of spectacular moment in so many ways because... There's no Israeli kid who could ever get that far in life without knowing about the Holocaust. And there's no way in my life I could have gotten that far without it. And of course, my kids very, very quickly soon afterwards, I told them just about everything they would ever want to know about the Holocaust. Um, And, you know, believe me, they're deeply schooled in that. But now, but there was a resistance. It took me time to get there. Um, And that's because that question of like, how, to what degree... Can we hold a like hold a space for their freedom? And it still is like for me a really important thing as a mother. Like history aside, like how can I be something 
which my someone which my kids can be next to and feel free and at the same mm-hmm. time teach them how to be how i think it's important to be in an ethical way in a or give them an example of how to live freely how to live largely how to live intelligently but not insist on them being anything but what they are i think that's a real um that's the the hope that's the that's the goal as a parent I've been speaking with writer Nicole Krauss about her latest story collection, To Be a Man. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll now continue with my conversation with author Nicole Krauss, whose most recent collection of stories is called To Be a Man. She's also the author of The History of Love and a number of other novels that have been translated across the globe. Well, Nicole, I I would love it if you could read something for us. Um, Is there something from the title story you could share? So this title story, To Be a Man, um, has four sections. And the first and last sections are in first person, and the two middle sections are in third person. But it's all told from the perspective of the same narrator, who's um, a woman who's in her early or mid-40s. And the opening section is about her father, the second section, which I'm going to read a small part from, is about a lover that she has. Um, and the third part is about a friend, a close friend of hers who's Israeli. And we mentioned him earlier in our conversation. He uh, was a soldier um, during the Lebanon War, but he that section is about a memory he has of being a soldier, but it's also about his marriage now, which mm. he decides to open, he and his wife decide to open after 23 years to have other lovers. And the final section is about, um, is the narrator thinking about her boys. Um, and so in a sense, it becomes, I hope, a more kaleidoscopic vision of, um, kaleidoscopic vision of, um, her particular experience of manhood through all of these, you know, different lenses. Um, so this is from that second section, and uh, it's not the very beginning, but she's she's so she's we've already established that she's 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 met this. Um, she calls him the German boxer, and in, in an effort to kind of keep a little bit of emotional distance from from the situation because she's just discovered, she says, like some Christopher Columbus of the soul, um, the land of being unattached and free. Mm. Um, so this is the section she's describing of, of when they're first set up and, and um, by a friend. A mutual friend set them up in New York, and over email they agreed to have dinner the following night. He asked if they could meet on the later side, since he would be boxing in the afternoon. Where did he box, she asked. She was curious to see this. In fact, she had never seen anyone box, not even on TV, since brutality and blood made her queasy. He wrote that she wouldn't want to meet him after he sparred, that it was the kind of gym where no one showered, but that if he liked her after tomorrow, he would take her to the gym and they would fight. Until then, it would remain a secret gym. Nobody knows me there or what I do or what I think or what I want, he wrote. She read his email three times, then replied that he ought to be careful, that she was deadly. She didn't know exactly why she wrote that, maybe because of the arrogance in his phrasing, the indirect challenge of it, 
if I still like you. Because of the sense of pride it tripped loose in her, even if she knew he was writing in the language not his own, without the nuance he had in German, and because she wanted him to know that she was someone who had, who had always had, a certain power over men, or because she wished to imply that whatever was explosive in him was also explosive in her, that there might be a parody there, and maybe more than a parody, that the scales of explosiveness, of a form of strength, might even tip in her favor, which may or may not have been grandstanding. My ribs have a tendency to break, he wrote back. Please be careful when destroying me. In other words, he knew exactly what to do with her, caught her and spun her around and drew her close, knew how to work her, knew just what a mix of strength and vulnerability in a man can do to certain women, of which she was apparently one. As it was, after this brief exchange, she knew that she would take him home to bed. The ending of that, it just, I, I remember reading that. I remember underlining it and starring part of it as I read it. And I, the, the mixture there of what you said of at least the mixture of power and vulnerability at the same time, this kind of combo there really struck me as something vital. You know, I think what's evident there is that it's no less a factor in her own presentation of herself, her own right. sense of herself, right? So we take those things sometimes um, in our short-sighted way to be male or female, but this struggle in any relationship from the very beginning and sometimes ongoing for power and our attraction to that struggle and the, you know, the inability to um, escape it, you know, is, is all present there. And, um, you know, there's the, it's on this, this, it's very much on the surface here because it's physical, right? They're talking about boxing, right? but there's this, you know, in, at the heart of so many erotic exchanges, if not romantic exchanges too, there's this desire to be bigger and smaller, to be stronger and weaker, right? To be um, held and to hold. And those tensions run across any relationship and change over time, back and forth, back and forth, because no, you can't occupy both positions at once. Um, and I think, you know, there that bit is playing with that. There's this moment just a little bit later and a, a page or two later in the story where they sit down at this restaurant during that first date and he's telling her about these ribs that break easily and the waitress comes and puts something down on the table and then he says to her, Are your, do you have long arms? And before she can even answer, he sort of takes her hand and he, he puts it on this rib that, that had been broken in his body and cleaned through so it's sort of floating freely never quite healed and so there's this rib that sticks out and the waitress comes and puts something down on the table and then she takes his hand and she puts it across the table on the, on the same rib on her um and he says wow you must have broken it too and she's she has no memory of having broken it. and she says something about that rib goes all the way back to the beginning to this question of um are we separate but equal, equal or separate but equal or, you know, different but equal or no, <laughs> you know? Um, this question, which has, you know, been ongoing, certainly for my generation and for a long time. Um, and I don't know what, you know, whether there will ever be a solution exactly to that. 
I think you hit on something so big there. And, and that question of power, you're right. It is not necessarily one of, of male or female, but one that is within, within all of us in any relationship and the need to have it, the need to give it up. And the swaying between the two is, is a really, I think really poignant. And, and when I think of your collection, this seems to crop up a number of times, doesn't it? Yeah, I think in many, many places it does. And it, it comes up in romantic relationships, but also in parent-child relationships quite a lot, mm. too. And, you know, again, if you think about it, that that desire that we have both to protect and be protected um, is, you know, we, you can't do both in the same instant. And in every real relationship that endures over time, you are going to be called on to have to play both of those positions. And at different times, you want for and long for one or the other. And some. Every single person who's ever been alive knows what it's to be in a relationship where you wanted and needed to be protected and instead you had to protect, right? And Or the person didn't protect you or, you know, you wanted to protect and fail to protect your child or a lover or a parent right. or whatever it was. And there's a moment toward the end of that story to be a man when the narrator is talking about her children. She talks about how they have begun to ask her they you know about how they were born you know you you kind of as a mother you're you at different times you tell you're asked to tell or you tell your kids the story of their birth and somehow it's come up it seems to be coming up again a lot and this she's she notices and but but something has changed and what's changed she says is that they seem to want to make her the hero of the story instead of them and that there's something about they want to know about how painful it was and that she had the strength you know, she doesn't take any um, any anesthetic and that she had the strength and the power to to kind of help them through this <laughs> terrifying passage into the world. And she right. says, you know, maybe it's this desire to kind of rest again in this old and fading order of things when they're called on, not called on to protect, but can be protected. And I think every child's, you know, again, not this is just is not confined to boys and manhood every child knows the feeling of that incredible seismic shift that happens when suddenly you realize that you have to protect your parents you know and it happens mm-hmm. to a lot of kids and when they're teenagers if not younger you know divorced kids early on have this guilt or fear that they need to take care of their parents but then this thing really happens where you get a bit older and you really have to take care of your parents right. you know um and so again, these these things are constantly shifting in our intimate relationships all our lives. And, uh, you know, I sometimes think when we talk about power, we just think of it as this ugly thing, right? Of course, power right now in our political system is as ugly as it gets. And power often, you know, it means that in, in larger um, strokes, in the strokes of societies and politics, it means that there are those without it, right? And that's the terrible thing. But there's also this maybe more benign shifting of power that happens between people who love each other, too. Um, and that's complex and interesting to me. You know, wh- one thing that I, I think you've always pointed to that's really interesting and and it's worth fleshing out as you've talked about this, this interesting role of in a romantic relationship, there's almost this essence of violence in it. And I'm not talking about a physical violence, but something else that's happening, I think on a deeper level. And I think people have gotten tripped over that word sometimes, but 
I, I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit more here, because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, sure. I um, I just noticed that that so that there was a line in Forest Ark um, where the character by now it's sort of we are well into the book. It's the last quarter of the book, and at that point. She, you know many things about her and the many forms she's had to break in order to find some authentic state or place of being, you know, which is this kind of unformed place where she is yet to become, <laughs> to put it very abstractly. Right. Um, and she's looking back, she's out in the desert and she's a little bit half out of her mind by this point um, because she's been ill with a fever. And she looks back in a relationship that she had long ago with a boyfriend and and she talks about how, and she's she's on the cusp of leaving a, a marriage, and she talks about how um, she doesn't think that she could ever, that, that she could ever, that one can ever really experience true love without a form of violence, and that she will never do that again. And I, what she meant, I, it was a question that came up a lot. Journalists would very often mm. ask me about it. Readers at, at readings would often ask me about it. I do think just simply because it was misunderstood, because I guess the, our, our first um, association with violence is usually physical, but there are many forms of sure. violence. Um, the kind that she was referring to was the kind that anyone, I think, who has really been in love has, has felt, um, which is the enormous impact of another person on your being because to fall in love with someone is to take this other person quite entirely into yourself, right? right. And right. I, you, you have to change so much of who you, how you think and who you are because, you know, and it's not like a, it's not a, the fact that often opposites attract, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that, that, I think it's because that, that thing is even more powerful in that case, right? Like we want to be shaken up. We want to be changed. And to take somebody into us who is not like ourselves and nobody is like ourselves, right, is, is mean, it requires this rearranging of self and on a very literal level of how do you live in a daily way and how do you keep your room and house and how do you raise your kids and how do you think about politics, et cetera, et cetera but in a deeper, deeper, more soulful way, right? To like make room for this love and this person. Um, and to fail to do that, to be too afraid to do that is is to give up this extraordinary chance, you know? And, and I think sometimes we are afraid, you know, of that and with good reason. Um, not only because apparently love is just, you know, being on a really, truly just being like on a drug trip, just, just, normal bodily chemicals right um and and that's a good reason to be afraid of it too um it's like being coked out for a couple of years but um i I don't know i i you know i think that that is something that i don't think it's an over romanticization because it's it's not very romantic it's pretty hard it's pretty Mm -hmm. difficult but it's i think it's a hopeful thing and again in the sense of like how much is possible and how much we can become and how much we can be to each other. But it's, um, it's certainly not like a peaceful venture to allow someone into yourself like that. Not that you don't have moments of great peace, (laughs) not that moments of extraordinary peace aren't possible when, you know, when you love someone. Yeah. Well, I'll let you go in, in just a minute here. And I, I just wondered, and maybe this is more of a nuts and bolts question, but I, 
every time I read your work, I, I, I kind of imagine you in another life as a philosopher or a psychologist. I'm not sure which, or maybe a cognitive scientist. I'm not sure. But um, I, I wonder in some ways if, if the short story collection also lets you free in certain ways to just explore these different parts of yourself uh, versus, you know, these novels we think are supposed to, you know, snap together so tightly. Is there, is there a certain freedom that has come for you in being able to work in a slightly different medium? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think I'm always on the search for freedom in my work in different forms. And I think yeah. the short story, I think it allowed a kind of playfulness, which is, which is a form of freedom, right? But it just allowed a playfulness because it's not in a two or three year undertaking. So you can start out with things that might you might not want to stay with or that might or might not work out or characters you wouldn't want to live with for years um, and still kind of go for it. And um, I just, I found that uh, like just exp- expanded my sense of um, what I was willing to do, what I was willing mm. to play with. But just to, just to speak to your last thought about cognitive science it's it's ironic because I'm this year I'm a writer in residence at um, uh, the Zuckerman Institute which is Columbia University's Mind Brain and Behavior Institute which is just a collection of neuroscientists who all have their labs there and um, and it's ironic because it's just it's been one of the enormous pleasures of my life this year Um, but you know, I could never, I, I could never agree to be a scientist because one is so bound. I mean, one is so bound by so many things of what you can and cannot do, and at least well, because you have to write a grant for everything that you want to do. But, but, but also just because you know, even the question I was speaking about this yesterday, I, I had a walk with one of these neuroscientists, and we were talking about these things, and we were talking at, at some point about the different ways that you know you can get at truth and and I pointed out to him that scientists really have you know they're working to he was talking about kind of justifying one's you know thing one's way of getting at truth and I said but scientists have to reveal truths that exist and you are bound by the fact that those can be disproven and wrong but I don't know that it's the case we could say that art is working to reveal truth but we could actually say something very different and more radical which is that art is working to shape truth right and the kind of truths Mm. that literature is shaping some of them we're never ready for which is why often certain writers and artists are not you know ever celebrated in their time only later you know because they came they were they saw and changed our Mm. truth before we were ready for it but I do think that there are things, you know, that that, we, that writers aren't only always revealing the way that scientists are getting to the bottom of what already exists. They're also changing how we think about ourselves and being. Well, Nicole Krauss, thank you so much for this conversation today and just for sharing so much of this with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk to you. Once again, that was Nicole Krauss, who's the author of a new collection of stories called To Be a Man. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. 
can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.